if someone is skeptical of your story, um, for your story to pass muster, two things are likely to have happened that someone or several people committed the murders and conspired to plant evidence in your apartment. And at the same time, the Dallas Police Department also was doing some things improper possibly or uh, made some mistakes or did things on purpose. So there's like two possible conspiracies happening at the same time. And I imagine that's hard for some people to get past that. Is that the, what are the odds of that happening all to one guy? Well, I think the odds are high. I think it happens a lot. I don't think it just happened in my situation. I mean, I think it does happen. But, you know, when you start when you start talking about, okay, not only did the rival drug dealers of my cousin have something to do with framing me, it's a, it's a whole different land when you start saying, well, the Dallas Police Department framed me. And then that's when that's when people, you know, they, they shut you out. They think that you're a delusional, crazy person. But when you walk them through the evidence or walk them through the reports, or, you know, then, then they can clearly see. But, but even when you can prove it, who are you going to prove it to? This is Texas. They're not necessarily trying to, to, to hear it in the courts. They're not going to admit, you know, that they get things wrong. When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 36, Ivan's Final Interview. last episode left us with a lot to consider. When trying to piece together all the forensic evidence we heard, it creates quite a scattered picture. So let's try to make sense of all those details and how those puzzle pieces could possibly fit together. And I'm not saying that these are all now indisputable facts. But if we are strictly going by the expert opinions we heard last episode... This is what we're looking at. James and Amy were both in bed, asleep, at the time of the murders. Amy Kitchen was killed sometime between 6.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. James and Amy were killed at the same time, so James would have been killed in that time window as well. Because he could have gotten into full rigor within 8 to 12 12 hours. hours. Yeah, yeah. And that would mean Amy Betcher was lying about Ivan coming back after the midnight visit, wearing bloody jeans, bloody socks, James' black shirt, and latex gloves. And per the DNA testing, it is very questionable if Ivan was ever wearing those jeans. You don't know? Or socks found in the kitchen trash can. So for this thought experiment, let's suppose Ivan was never wearing those jeans or socks. But then you have Amy Betcher having a detail that seemingly only the killer would know that did not come from the cops. Amy Betcher knew the gun jammed during the course of the murders. Now, did Ivan really tell her that? 
I don't know. But we do know Ivan's thumbprint is on the magazine of the murder weapon. So let's look at all these details from the perspective of both scenarios, Ivan committing the murders and Ivan not committing the murders, and see how the details could line up. First, Ivan committing the murders. That lines up with the thumbprint on the magazine and Amy knowing about the jam. However, the time Amy said was way off. But the new timeline could make sense of other anomalies. So let's talk this out. Let's say Ivan killed them at 6.30 a.m. Right after that toll tag hit in James Corvette at 6.28 a.m. That would mean James and Amy did give Ivan permission to drive their vehicles, which is weird, but okay. At 6.30 a.m., that would presumably put James and Amy Kitchen asleep in their bed. Unlike the midnight visit, as Amy Kitchen's mom testified, she was talking to her around the same time Ivan would have arrived. And it always seemed preposterous that Ivan would have taken Amy Betcher back to the crime scene at 2.30 a.m., and this new timeline wipes that away. During the 2.30 visit, they would have just switched out the vehicles, the Mercedes for the Corvette, and James and Amy would have still been alive. This theory explains why Smiley and the party DJ didn't get an inclination that Amy was fearful for her life and Ivan had just killed two people because it had not happened yet. Also, Ivan was pretty much sober for the midnight visit. The prosecution even said there was no evidence that Ivan was on anything. It is hard to believe that he would kill his own cousin and Amy Kitchen sober. But by 6.30 a.m., he was admittedly on coke, ecstasy, and speed. So at that point, a drug-fueled psychosis could have been the catalyst. At 6.30 a.m., Ivan would have had a key to their house. It would have been on James' Corvette keyring. He could have pulled the Corvette into the garage and entered the house through the garage, quietly, getting the jump on James and Amy asleep in the bed. Now, why did he do it at 6.30 a.m.? We still don't know, other than he was blasted out of his mind on drugs. But the 6.30 a.m. attack theory could make a lot of these puzzle pieces fit. Now, why did Amy lie about the murders happening at midnight? Because she was there at 6.30. Much harder for the police to believe she had nothing to do with it if she's there during it. And that's how she knew about the gun jamming. Amy would have said Ivan committed the murders at midnight because she could prove she wasn't there at that time. Phone records would show she called Mel and her stepdad while Ivan was over for the midnight visit. However, this new timeline theory doesn't alleviate the anomaly of the jeans and socks and latex gloves in their kitchen trash can. Especially if Ivan was never wearing them and Ivan and Amy never put them in there. Which brings us to a side theory that people have postulated, even James' family have speculated at this. The theory that Ivan was somehow a part of the murders, but others 
were also involved. Maybe even Ivan didn't pull the trigger, but he knows who did. And that's why he's never said anything about it. He's still implicated. But in this side theory, these other guys, maybe Carlos, Anthony, or Chris Head, set up Ivan to take the fall. That's why Ivan's DNA isn't on the jeans and socks, and why the evidence in the trash can and closet and James Corvette feels like it was planted, because it was. In this scenario, Ivan's thumbprint is on the magazine, so he at least held the gun at some point and easily could have left it under Tawny's couch cushion. Or if Ivan wasn't the trigger man, somehow the group got Ivan to hold the gun, or at least a magazine, leaving his thumbprint on it. And then Amy left the gun and magazine for Tawny to find. Again, lots of moving pieces, but it would basically take some semblance of those two theories to make the forensic opinions you heard last episode work. Now let's look at it from the other side. Ivan had no part in the murders, and it was a total setup job. That would explain why they couldn't find Ivan's DNA on the jeans and socks. He never wore them, and they were planted. This theory works with James and Amy being killed after 6.30 a.m. and being asleep in the bed at the time of the murders. And assuming Amy planted the gun to help frame Ivan, whoever gave her the gun could have mentioned to her that the gun jammed so that she could put that into her statement implicating Ivan. Amy going to the police and giving her statement would have been a crucial part of the pre-planned plot. But the glaring detail unexplained is Ivan's thumbprint on the magazine of the murder weapon. If Ivan wasn't involved, is there a believable explanation? It's time for Ivan to have a final opportunity to explain everything and cough up anything else he knows. With Ludus changing his opinion on the thumbprint, Ivan's back is back up against the wall. He's been on death row for 21 years at this point. Who knows how much more time he has before Collin County issues his death warrant. While I submitted a request for Ivan's media interview, the prison denied me citing that I was a private investigator, not eligible for a media interview. While it is true I am a PI, I'm also a journalist working on this case. So their decision seemed unfounded, but regardless, it's their prison and their rules. So Houston journalist Michael Haggerty took the reins for this interview. And as hard as I tried to push Amy Betcher in her interview, I requested Michael do the same with Ivan. This was one last shot to get to the truth. Okay, I think we're ready to start. Thank you. Can you just state your name and today's date? My name is Ivan Cantu. Today's date is July 20th, 2022. 
So you were convicted, of course, of killing your cousin, James Mosqueda, and his fiancée, Amy Kitchen. Uh, did you kill them? I did not, and I want I thank you for coming. And it's a blessing to sit down with you, and I want, I want the world to know and, and everybody that listens to this show and to the podcast that I did not. And um, I know that at first glance, people, they think the worst, and if they will just... Um, you know, look at the facts, look at the case that not only that was presented, you know, to the jury and to what was withheld from my defense, they'll clearly see that I'm an innocent man and I, I do not belong here. So then uh, from your perspective, why did you get convicted for these murders? I got, well, I got convicted because of the Dallas Police Department, not necessarily investigating the case. I mean, initially when they, when they would talk to people, they would take glances and bits of pieces of information and I jumped to conclusions. And in return, I mean, they, um, well, there, there was a process to where they were able to, to gain entry into the apartment through a safety check and through, through a search warrant. And had the Dallas Police Department investigated with their other officers or even the, when, the, when the case was handed to the prosecution, um, they would have clearly known that had they just talked to, to one officer that happened to be out of town during my trial, who was Officer Iliff, who participated in the safety check. Um, her now, her name is Eichenberg now. Had they been able to talk to her, that would have made a world of difference and put the brakes on, on everything that's been out of control and put me here, put me here today. This is an officer who, uh, again, as you said, was working for the Dallas Police Department at that time and then now has, since leaving years later, has, has been interviewed about your case and his. Absolutely. You'll remember my interview with Eichenberg in episode five. I sent her the picture of the kitchen trash can that was admitted as state's evidence at trial and asked her. When you were in there with you, Younger, and Sylvia, the trash can did not look like that. It did not look like that. I mean, how do you not catch that as a police officer or your partner or his mother? You know, we looked through the whole apartment. There's no way. I mean, maybe after the detectives went there, but when I was there, I mean, that was the same day. It was not an accurate depiction. Does that mean to you that if that wasn't in the trash can, at that point, and Ivan was out of town, it would be your assessment that someone else other than Ivan or Amy had to put those items in the trash can. That's my assessment, yes. Let's go into some of the, the specifics, walking through some of the timeline here. November 2nd, 2000, this is the night before the murders. Uh, you and your girlfriend at the time, Amy Betcher, uh, she testified that you had fired a gun at her in your apartment, that same gun that she says you committed the murders with the next night. Did you indeed fire a gun at her? I did not. The, the, the situation never happened. Did you have a gun at the time of the murders? I did not. I've never had a, I've never had a, a gun in my life. I've never fired a gun. I've never been to the, the firing range. And as a matter of fact, when I was in the Navy, the only, you know, I was there for, for a temporary amount of time. The only weapon I fired there was a, a fake laser-pointed M16 that they used for basic training. And all the years that, that I, I got here when I was 27 years old, in 27 years, no one has ever seen me or said that I've ever had a gun or seen me with a gun or, or even made or ever implied that. The only two people on the planet that have ever said that uh, they saw me with a gun was Amy Betcher and Jeff Betcher. Her brother. Her brother, correct. This is fascinating. Does it mean that Ivan didn't have this gun, the murder weapon? No, it does not. But it is awfully curious that seemingly the only two people in the whole world that have ever seen Ivan with a gun is Jeff and Amy Betcher. And I mean, from, from, from living with roommates, girlfriends, being married, never had a weapon, and never been seen or had a gun or, or fired a gun. 
A bullet was later found lodged in the wall of that apartment that you two shared uh, by the door where, according to Amy Betcher, your former girlfriend, you, she said you shot at her. Uh, if you didn't fire at her, how, how did that bullet end up there? The bullet ended there on um, November 2nd, which was a Thursday at 5 o'clock. If you've heard the podcast, I'm sure you're familiar with. I don't know if you're there. There's a pizza man situation. And when he knocked on the door and I was able to look through the peak hole, um, and I saw the Domino's Pizza shirt. When I opened that door, it was one fluid motion. And when he came in, that's when he put the gun to the left side of my head. And I went down to, you know, my knees. And I did not, I mean, I was shocked because of the situation. Nothing like that had ever happened to me. And, you know, when I, when I asked who he was, that's when he said his name was, was Matt from the Valley. Um, he wanted to know what my name was. I told him my name was Ivan. A lot of people have thought that he was looking for James. He was not looking for James. His main concern was wondering if I was going to go back to the mortgage company and help James close loans. He didn't necessarily say that money was owed to him, but that money was owed for drugs and that 50,000 had been paid and 250,000 was still due. And if other people, um, you know, had, or if, if he didn't receive his money, then other people, he had a list in his hand, a white piece of notebook paper in, in his right hand. His, his left hand was clear, um, the way that he was positioned for the door. And I think that is to where if I was to try to move or defend myself or leave, um, he was gonna stop me. But um, that that's, and then he fired over my left shoulder and went into the wall. Um, I stayed on my knees and he left. And within 30 seconds or so, I looked out the window and that's when I saw the, the black Lincoln and saw the black Lincoln drive off. So this man wearing a Domino's pizza uniform, you say, uh, forced his way into your apartment with a gun, held you at gunpoint. I mean, what did he say? What did he demand? What I just mentioned to you. And I mean, if uh, he didn't receive his money, that other people were on there. I, I, by looking at that list, I was able to get a glance at it and I couldn't make out. I, I saw a few of the last names, which was Tamez, Gonzalez, um, there was, and, um, um, you know, of course my name, but I couldn't necessarily make out what the, what the first names were. But the, the situation wasn't long. It lasted less than about three minutes. And then that's when he left. And like I said, I, I stayed in my position where I was at um, for about 30 seconds. Looked out the, the kitchen window, and that's when I saw the black Lincoln drive off. I, I do not know whether he got into the passenger seat or the driver's seat, so I don't I don't know if somebody was with him um, in the vehicle that day. And, it, you know, people, as much as they say they think that that situation just sounds ludicrous, which it does, it sounds absolutely crazy, it turns out to be true because years later a witness came forward and said, hey, you know what, I heard your podcast. What Ivan is saying is true because that man that he describes with that black Lincoln. You'll remember this from episode 29, intercut with my previous interview with Ivan. This is how the witness Ryan described the man that came into his rims and tires shop. Probably like 510 maybe. Well, keep in mind, I'm having to look up from my knees. I want to say, you know, he, I want to say he was about six feet tall. Could be an inch lower or an inch higher. You could tell you he worked out, but he wasn't like real stocky and big. And how much would you figure he'd weigh? One. 80 to 190. But the one description that stood out the most was... His hair was kind of pulled back like either like in a duck tail or like a ponytail. It was kind of slicked back. And it was, it was fairly long. It went, it went back past his shoulders a little bit. And he had long hair. I would say shoulder length, all of it, you know, was going back, you know, like slick back hairdo. But he was always playing with it, man, it seemed like. With the, 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 the look of Steven Seagal or even Travolta. It just reminded me of Antonio Banderas. That's too coincidental. Well, I mean, I don't believe in coincidence. And so, but the, and that was the guy that was driving yeah. the box car at Lincoln. Exactly, that was the guy. They said, "Hey, I've I've seen Carlos with that guy at this tire shop putting cars on, putting rims on that car." It was right before nine eleven, because this was like August uh, or September well, of two thousand one. That's when I saw this guy. So it would have been after the murders. It would have been after the murders. Yeah. They saw Carlos a month before he testified in October 
of 2001 during his testimony when the prosecutors were talking to him and as he shared the situation with the police prior to my arrest, my illegal arrest, um, you know, when he was sharing that story, he made it sound like it was preposterous and that with that, with that um, information servicing that I had to have been crazy or just lying to the world or lying, or lying to people. Well, it turns out today that information is true and a witness has come forward that, could, that, uh, that, that can testify to that. And, uh, and what's interesting about that is that Carlos Gonzalez, when he testified against me in October, he made it sound like I was a crazy man and that that situation was just ludicrous and not true. Eyewitnesses have him with that man a month before in September. Yeah, I mean, I imagine people looking at this from a surface level, looking at just the nuts and bolts, maybe bullet points of your defense or your case or your claims since then um, would say, yeah, that, that sounds made up, that sounds ludicrous. I mean, when I first started, it does. I mean, it, 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 it sounds like, I mean, people the whole time thought that I was all full of crap. And from that point forward, um, that's where a lot of the situations went out of control. And Carlos Gonzalez was actually able to call Detective Wynn. And when he spoke to me on the phone, not, not Detective Wynn, but Carlos, he would make it sound as if um, he was willing to do everything he could, could to help me and just explain the situation to him. And he asked me what had happened. And um, I told him. Now, here's something else that's interesting. He'd called Detective Wynn and actually had Detective Wynn come out to the house and lay in the lay in the cup, meaning, you know, just, you know, in the background on speakerphone to, to talk to me and ask me about the situation. Um, he lured me to have that conversation. And, um, you know, everything that I'm telling you is exactly what I told him. But even even on that day before Carlos went to the police department to fill out a statement, he had made it sound like it was that, that was a completely ludicrous situation. But what wasn't presented to my jury or even to the police is that a week before that happened to me, it had happened to Carlos's best friend, not necessarily but the pizza man, but to where, where somebody was looking for money, you know, knocking down doors, asking questions. And, uh, you know, and it just turns out that that police report was withheld. Ivan's referring to the police report in which a Dallas sergeant contacted James' sister and brother-in-law, Tamez. This is from that report. Tamez told me that James Mosqueda, Ivan Cantu, Anthony Fonseca, Francisco, and Ray all worked together. Tamez stated he did not associate with this group much and kept his family away when asked why. He stated that he believed the group were dealing drugs. Tamez said that his sister told him that she had heard from Fonseca about a week and a half ago that he told her someone had kicked in his front door. Fonseca has not been heard from since. That information was listed in a police report that was with that we did not discover till the middle of my trial when they withheld the binders. So had we had that during my trial, we could have impeached, you know, not only the Dallas Police Department but Anthony Fonseca and Carlos on the stand. Yeah, Detective Wayne introduced that that binder of his notes and, and some. Well, he didn't necessarily introduce it. He didn't introduce he it. Did not, not technically. He, that's right. He was speaking from it. He brought it onto the stand, but it wasn't introduced as evidence. That's right. It should have been. It should have been turned. It, we're not. We're not talking. You know. You know. Ten or fifteen pages. We're talking two, three wing binders full of police reports, witnesses' statements, affidavits, everything that I would have needed to defend myself during trial. You'll remember in episode ten, I discussed this binder situation with Ivan's current lawyer. Gina Bunn. It got really interesting when they called the lead detective. Apparently, Detective Wynn didn't bring his notes to the stand. So therefore, he was uh, having trouble kind of remembering the case. And then at a certain point, I guess they took a break. And then he brought what seemed to be a big stack, a big file of papers in. Binders. 
binders full of papers. When Detective Wynn was on the stand and he, he wanted to be able to review his notes and he comes up with these, you know, spiral binders full of, um, you know, apparently witness statements and offense reports. And of course, when, when that, when that happens, defense counsel is like, okay, well, um, he's using this to refresh his memory. We're entitled to that. So there's huge hearing about whether defense, the defense is, is entitled to this information. Uh, you have the state not only, you know, not turning it over at trial while the witness is on the stand, but even then, I mean, the defense, they didn't get them even at trial. Um, the state, you know, went through these binders and, and turned over what it deemed to be, quote unquote, exculpatory. The bulk of these binders, the defense didn't even get then. Witness statements, uh, statements that, you know, offense reports um, that the state argued on the record, well, you know, we don't think they should have them. There were numerous pieces of exculpatory evidence within those binders. And again, at the end of the Sub Rosa hearing, Ivan's trial lawyer said to the judge, Your Honor, I think the state has brought up a conspiracy theory, Judge. I'm going to need a very lengthy continuance to investigate this. Judge, you know I'm teasing, right? But this is where there's a bullet hole in Ivan's story. So the pizza man story, whether ludicrous or reality, um, he, he comes in and threatens you with a gun later, um, and he, he fires a bullet while he's there. He fired into the in, wall. In your yes. apartment. That's how you claim the, the bullet ended up lodged in the wall. Ballistics traced that same bullet back to the murder weapon, that it matched the same gun that committed these crimes. I mean, am I correct in that? You are correct in that. I mean, that's that's what the police are claiming, and that's what SWIFTS, which is the Southwest Institute of Forensic Sciences, which is technically the, the Dallas Police Department crime lab, they're claiming that, and they're saying that. But prior to trial, my defense team did not secure the, um, the funding or an independent expert to have that viewed. And just even at first glance, you would clearly see that that bullet did not go through sheetrock, through a two-by-four, and was lodged in a brick wall, as the police claim. If you were to look at that bullet, it looks completely intact. The nose of it is pinched and kind of closed, but uh, it did not. It's a completely different bullet than the bullet that was fired in the apartment from the pizza man. My belief is that when they when they got that bullet out of the wall, they realized it didn't match the gun that they were presenting to the case. So they had to get back into the apartment on November 29th with a different officer. And this is where it gets interesting. Per the affidavit for search warrant, during the initial search on November 7th, Detective Whitsitt attempted to remove the bullet from the wall, but the projectile had traveled through the wall and lodged into the interior side of the brick, which is also the exterior wall of the building. Therefore, Detective Whitsitt was unable to seize the suspected projectile, making an additional search warrant necessary to recover the evidence. So, according to a report and testimony, a Detective Pepsis came back on November 29th with Detective Wynn to remove the bullet. It is curious, leaving a major piece of evidence in a capital murder case 
like a bullet connected to the murder weapon, lodged in a wall for 22 days before its removal, and for going through a wall, a two by four, and being lodged into brick. You can clearly see that there's no damage on this bullet. Ivan's theory is that the bullet presented at trial that was said to have been taken from the wall of the apartment was actually a test fire, but... Can't necessarily say that it's a test fire because they claim that the test fires have been turned over, but nobody from my team has been able to see the test fires to see if, they're, if they've been mushroomed or if that, if that bullet on the lands and grooves um, came from a test fire. We don't know because we haven't had an independent expert look at the ridges and, and grooves on that. Because your defense never hired uh, independent investigators, you haven't been able to challenge that. That's the evidence that, that you lack, right, to prove your claim, right? That's one, and it, it, extend, it extends to two, to two more problems. One of them being that when that was with the officer testifying about the bullet, and then when it, get in, when it got into the forensics of the gentleman that actually claims to have reviewed it to, to claim the match, his name was Lanny Emanuel from Swift's. And while talking to the prosecutor, who was Miss Falco, she has a report in her hand. And as she's talking to him, she asked him, hey, when you were looking at this bullet and when you prepared your report, you clearly put that there was a white plaster or, or some kind of a white plaster or white coating in, in the bullet, right? He says, yes, that is clearly not true. Because for one thing, the bullet that we viewed does not have a white plaster on it or anything white on that. And not just that, whatever she had in her hand that day, was not any document that we've ever seen or that's ever been turned over to my defense because we don't have not one document that this man produced had ever put that, that term or that wording into it. The term, quote, white plaster-like substance, as though it traveled through a wall, unquote. Now a hollow point bullet that has been lodged into a wall will have wall debris lodged into the hollow point nose. There's no picture showing the bullet with debris and no documentation was ever turned over to the defense with a white plaster-like substance on the bullet. And again, why this bullet is so important, because it supposedly demonstrates that Ivan fired this gun, and not the pizza man. And while it can't be overstated how crazy that pizza man story sounds, there is also something bizarre about Ivan firing this gun, for seemingly no reason, into his own wall. Let's look at the paper trail. At some point in time, Detective Wynn not only removed that gun and the, the ballistics that were attached to it from Tawny's and the crime scene, um, he had removed those. From Swift's, the Dallas Crime Lab. Before going to the, on November 29th, before going to the Peerage apartment to claim to have pulled out a bullet from that wall. I believe that that was the, the ruse that they pulled to make sure that whatever weapon was found matched the ballistics to that gun, or they shuffled around ballistics. Like a lot of elements in this case, this sounds crazy, but Ivan explains further in a letter. Let me take it again from the top. November 13th, Officer Richard E. Clark submitted the gun and ammo to Swift's. Sometime after November 13th, Detective Wynn checked out the same items from Swift's. I cannot locate a document or report showing which day Detective Wynn removed these items, but we know he did, and I'll prove it in a second. November 29th, the Pear Ridge bullet is removed from the apartment. While this collection is taking place, Detective Wynn has the gun and 11 Federal 380 automatic cartridge cases in the Federal ammo box and one fired bullet collected from the crime scene. Seriously, think about it. Why does Detective Wynn have all this ballistic evidence in his possession? 
On December 6th, 2000, Detective Wynn returned or resubmitted all of these items. The December 7th Swift's report confirms this. Yep, while collecting the Pear Ridge bullets on November 29th, Detective Wynn possessed all of the ballistic evidence from the crime scene and Tawny's apartment. So yeah, the entire world and audience needs to know this because DPD or the prosecution surely isn't going to share this with the jury. This isn't an assumption. We literally have the paper trail to prove it. Now, like Ivan said, the date in which Detective Wynn took possession of all the ballistic evidence is unknown because there's no record of Detective Wynn taking it out of the crime lab. But there is documentation that he checked it back in about a week after the bullet was said to have been taken out of that wall. So when you put all this together, the bullet's 22-day hiatus from its removal, no pictures, the lack of documentation, and Detective Wynn's possession of all the ballistic evidence around this time. It does raise some legitimate concerns about the integrity of this part of the investigation. I want to move on to the night of the murders now. Um, your girlfriend again, Amy Betcher, um, at that time, uh, she became the state's star witness against you. She testified that you told her you were going to kill your cousin and his fiance that night. And then shortly before midnight that Friday night that you left your apartment with a gun and that you came back to your apartment about 45 minutes later with blood all over you. And she testified that you had stolen and brought your cousin's wallet both of the victims' IDs and their car keys with you back to your apartment. Uh, did she make that up? She absolutely she did. Now, let's not forget, she also claims that there was a, there was a Rolex, too. Okay, that, that, that she was not being truthful. That is a lie. And with her, with her saying that had that been true, then there would have, you know, been blood in the vehicles. No blood in the car. Man, that's weird. She claims that I was hit with a baseball bat of some sort, so my face was, was puffy. We saw people that evening that, that um, knew I had nothing wrong with my face. He was not. There was no bruise on him. I would ask about that. You know, hey, what happened to you? No, no. He just looked normal as could be. Or even the next day, going and visiting her parents, her stepfather. Was Ivan's uh, face bruised up at all um, during the visit? No. There was nothing wrong with my face. Forensically, when you, when you pick apart the case or go through the, the cars or everything that she's talking about, that information is her statements, and we have been able to, to disprove and discredit literally everything that she's ever said. It turns out that the, that the Rolex was never even stolen, and the police knew about it. And I believe that the, the prosecution had to have known about it before they even started with my trial. Because later on, family members of the victim, James, one of the victims, James, had produced the, the Rolex. That's right, yeah. While I'm sitting in the Collin County Jail and the, and the police department is, is still preparing a case against me, they know that, that their star witness lied about the Rolex. The Rolex was never stolen. It was in their possession. As a matter of fact, they turned it over to the family but yet they continued putting a case to, you know, at this at that point, they should have realized and known that, hey, this, this girl's not credible. If she's lying about this, what else is she lying about? Let, let's, let's look into what she's talking about and what's going on, talk to some other people. They did not do that. I mean, of course I blame Collin County because of the way that they prosecuted me and went after me. But then, you know, there, there is a part that's not necessarily their fault. And I say that because the Dallas Police Department, they investigated the case 
the crime had occurred on the, the, the actual line of, I guess, their jurisdiction, which was Frankfurt and the tollway. And so when they realized that it wasn't necessarily, you know, their case to deal with, literally they, they, they didn't investigate the case. They put everything in a box, you know, a conviction kit in a box, you know, slapped together some reports. They go and take it to the, prosecu the prosecutor, Collin County, and drop it off. So literally they took everything out of the box, just assumed that, you know, all the information was true, that the police reports were legit, and that the officers were being truthful, and then they went after me. Had they had their own independent um, investigators look into things and actually sit down with Betcher, you know, not to prep her before my trial, but to investigate her, her claims, I truly believe that they would have put the brakes on, on my situation not, and not, not convicted me. Let's walk through a couple of the, the key evidence and pieces then uh, against you. Uh, uh, how do you explain the bloody jeans and socks that were found later in your apartment trash can and that matched the victim's blood? Well, this is real simple to explain. Just to be clear, on November 4th, when my mom was at the crime scene, she wanted to uh, just to make sure that I was okay. That's when she was able to get the attention of Officer Iliff and Officer Younger and go over to the um, the Parridge apartment to do the safety. She left the crime scene to go check on you at your nearby apartment, your mom and these officers. Correct. But they clearly did not see, you know, bloody jeans or socks laying on the top of the trash can, as Amy Betcher had claimed and said. And I, when being framed, these people were so sloppy, whether it came from the rival, the rival drug dealers of my cousin or the police department, you know, the blood on the jeans is on the side and the back. So unless you had the jeans on backwards, when you were committing murder, I mean, they just, it, it doesn't make sense. And the forensics don't line up. And the jeans aren't the same size that you wear and... No, they're several sizes bigger. Now, what's interesting about those jeans is that you can't, they're not even available to purchase at a store. They're prototypes that were uh, manufactured by the Arizona Jean Company, um, then sent to J.C. Penney's to distribute them. But the, at the time, we, we were able to actually track down the, manu the, the plant manager of this manufacturing distributor. And those jeans at the time, you could not even buy. Not only were they several sizes too big for me, but the, the blood on the, is on the side and the back of the jeans. So, I mean, they, whoever, you know, put the blood on the jeans or, you know, if they were used to commit a murder, they weren't even, the blood, there's no blood on the front of those jeans. And as A.B. Betcher mentioned, she said that, um, you know, blood was everywhere. And in some of the police reports, even the officers said that, um, you know, that I was covered in blood. There's not, there's, uh, I want to say maybe three or four specks of blood and then there are drops. But um, you, those jeans, you can't even, you can't even get at a store. Yeah, so you, you alleged that not only were those not your jeans, but they probably weren't being worn by, and they weren't there when police did a wellness check on you uh, the day the bodies were found, but also that um, that those jeans couldn't have been even used, uh, couldn't have been the primary killers, couldn't have been wearing those. Forensically, right. But now, now during trial, of course, they're going to say, hey, we went into his apartment based on Amy Betcher's statement. We looked in the trash can. We found these jeans. And aha, there's, there's blood on these jeans that match, that match the victims. So when a juror, when a juror hears that, they're thinking they're worst. But, you know, my defense team or even the police department didn't logically think, hey, let, let's, let's walk through with what she's saying. And had they just talked to Officer Iliff and Officer Younger, they could, when they did the safety check, they could have asked, they could have asked them, see all these, these items that are attached to the crime? Did you see these in the apartment? Did you see them on top of the trash can with no lid? Absolutely not. These are, and they spent, they spent a good amount of time in that apartment. I want to say they were in there between maybe eight to 10 minutes. It's a 750 square foot studio apartment. And, um, you know, so then they went through there and had, had they seen anything that would have been out of ordinary or that would have been attached to a crime, they would have alerted the police immediately, considering that the lead detective was at the crime scene. 
and got a detective went over there and they would have tore that place apart. But they didn't. There was they weren't there. So they after the safety check, they wrapped up the safety check. They they wrapped it up at eight thirty seven, and that's when they left there. Well, it, we know for a fact that somebody was in that apartment at eight fifty three after at eight thirty seven when Officer Younger secured the apartment, gave the apartment key back to the manager, and left. That part, it, the apartment was clean. Well, it turns out at 8.53, somebody was in that apartment. They made a long-distance phone call. You'll remember that call was made to Francisco, who had left this message on Ivan's answering machine the previous day. Ivan, Francisco, it's a Tuesday, uh, 9 a.m. Let, let me know how we come. If you got time, if not, uh, call me this afternoon. I'm by. That was the father of one of Ivan's former girlfriends. After hearing that on the podcast... Basically, let me know if you still want to go to Mexico, is the way that I took that. So from inside Ivan's apartment, at 8.53 p.m. on November 4th, right after the safety check, a call was made to this Francisco. The call only lasted one minute on the phone records. So likely Francisco did not pick up. Now the intriguing thing is that the safety check was cleared at 8.37 p.m. So on paper, it looks like this call would have been made 16 minutes after the cops would have locked back up, meaning someone else was back in that apartment. But at trial, the male officer at the safety check, his name was Younger. He testified that after he and Eichenberg searched the apartment, essentially for dead bodies, they came out, cleared the call, and then let Sylvia in to check things out for herself. And Officer Younger testified that Sylvia made that call at 8.53 p.m. as she was going through numbers on Ivan's caller ID. Now, Sylvia is adamant she did not make that call. But given Officer Younger's aforementioned testimony and that it was just a random call to Francisco, not anyone potentially connected to the murders or any setup, this phone call at 8.53 p.m. is one piece of evidence that just doesn't seem to have any exculpatory value. Here I'd also like to note, when I can shoot down Ivan's arguments, at least from a prosecutor's standpoint, I will, like this phone call. But when there is a legitimate argument to be made as to what Ivan's saying, I'll make that distinction as well. Shortly after that, you know, the, the vet is located at the apartment. Which, which the police did not see either when they left the crime scene. They, they knew that a Corvette was missing. Well, it was found 30 feet from the front door. So had it, had it been 30 feet from the front door, as Amy Betcher claimed when we left, the safety check officers would have seen that, and it wasn't. Here again, Ivan's argument can be debunked from a prosecutor's standpoint. You'll remember from episode five, I also spoke with Sylvia about the possibility of James Carr being in the lot. And I didn't know to look for the Corvette, but I do know that it was lit, you know, the carports had lights underneath them. There was cars that were parked in there. Now, if the Corvette was there, though, uh, would you It wouldn't be it? hard to spot it. He was at the end of a building, and where the Corvette was, uh, where it was found, it was next to the south wall of his kitchen. So how close was that to where you were sitting in your car? Maybe 20 feet, 15, 20 feet. But because you didn't know to look for it, mm -mm. could it have been there? I was looking there? for his car. Well, I'm just trying to figure out. So it is a possibility that the Corvette was parked there. You didn't notice it because right. you were thinking about right. the Honda. Mm -hmm. And potentially the cops 
didn't notice it because maybe they weren't part of that part of the investigation at that point. And the Corvette also came up in Officer Younger's testimony. Younger testified a sergeant called him the following morning and asked him if he happened to notice the stolen Corvette parked inside the apartment complex during the safety check. He told the sergeant no, he did not, stating he had no reason to look for it. You see, Ivan wasn't a suspect at the time of the safety check. Even if Younger knew the Corvette was missing, it is understandable that he wasn't looking for it, parked in Ivan's apartment complex. So there's no way to prove one way or another if James Corvette was parked in the lot during the safety check. But we do know it was in that lot approximately six hours after the safety check because it was located through Lojack at about 3 a.m. on November 5th. But getting back to the evidence found inside the apartment and Eisenberg's affidavit, Ivan contends, I can clearly show the world and, and, and show everybody that, you know, those, those items were put into the apartment, you know, well after 8.37 when they left. And it couldn't have been me or Amy Betcher because we were already in Arkansas. So who put them there? That's, that's, that's the big puzzle. We don't know for a fact who put them there. Um, depending on how you look at the case and how you look at the evidence, you can look at it two different ways. Um, we can think that some people put it there, or you can think that the police department put it there. But when you start, when you, when you start saying, hey, the police department framed me, or and the police did it, um, and that's, um, you know, people think you're crazy for one thing. I don't know exactly who put it in there. I know it wasn't Amy Metcher. I know it wasn't me. You know, it's not, I'm, not, I don't, I'm, I'm not the police. It's not my job to figure out. That's why we have a police department and investigators. Who would have had an opportunity or means, any, any theories about that, to, to plant evidence? In October of 2000, before making the move, um, we, um, in making the move, um, I needed an extra vehicle. And so I, um, there was a red Mustang that was being used. My mom had actually owned the car, but Anthony Fonseca, um, had the vehicle, and so he let me use it before the move. And after the move, when I returned the car, one of the apartment keys was still left on there. And we moved in on October 15th, so between October 15th through, you know, before leaving town, which was on the morning of the 4th, you know, I, I tried to get with him, I tried to get the key back, and I never got it, but I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking the worst either. I mean, I'd known, I'd known him for, you know, several years, and he, he was, he grew up with my cousin, and we weren't, you know, you know, the best of friends, but I mean, we were, we were cordial and things were okay. And, um, but I was never able to get the key back. But now, and he's best friends with Carlos, so I do know that, that him and Carlos did have access to that apartment while I was out of town because of the key being left on the key ring. But you'll remember when I asked Anthony. Now, did you have a key to Ivan's apartment on the keychain on that Mustang? No, I had the transmitter and the key. Okay, there were no other keys on that key ring. No, there's no, it was just a, a transmitter and, and the car key. But I remembered what Ivan's Aunt Penny said on the jailhouse tapes to Ivan. She said that... Detectives, uh, we, we talked to her, the Sullivan lady, and uh, I made it very clear to her that I was a witness that um, there was another key, you know, that Anthony had a key. Yeah. I made it very clear to her that I was a witness to that and that I actually held his keys and, and your key was there. Yeah. And they're, you know, so that way they can, they know that there's a witness who's, 
who's willing to stand up on your behalf. This key situation is a crucial detail. Setting aside if Carlos or Anthony actually did or did not plant the evidence, I wanted to pin down if there was actually a possibility that they could have. Anthony said there was no apartment key on the Mustang keychain, and yet back in 2000 on the jailhouse tapes, Penny sounded adamant there was an apartment key. I wanted to see if Penny could remember why she was so certain over 20 years ago. After texting and calling Penny multiple times, I asked Sylvia if Penny had changed her number and she told me that Penny had died of cancer in October of this year. Sad to hear. This case has gone on so long and people connected to it continue to pass away. But this key situation was also documented in a pretrial hearing in which Sylvia testified she went to the Parridge apartment with the key from the Mustang keychain. She was there to remove Ivan's things from the apartment. But the key didn't work, so she went to the apartment complex office. She was told the locks had been changed, and if she wanted to get in there, she would need to talk to Detective Wynn. So although Anthony said there was no additional key on the key ring, when Sylvia and Penny got the Mustang key ring back, there was an extra key on it. If that was Anthony's key, a key that Anthony needed, you would think he would have asked for it back. So while it can't be confirmed now, because Ivan's attorneys failed to do so then, it does seem quite plausible that was the Pear Ridge apartment key, giving access to Anthony and Carlos. But getting back to the night of the murders, It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You're, uh, again, Amy Betcher, your, your former girlfriend at the time, she testified that you had the gun when you went over to your cousin and fiancé's house, that she says you went over there that night. When you came back, she said you were upset because the gun had jammed in her statements. There was a ruptured casing found at the crime scene. That casing indicates that the gun likely did jam during the murders, whoever committed that. How would Amy possibly have known about that jam if you hadn't told her? I have no idea. Um, there was never a gun. I never said anything like that. She never saw anything like that. And the, there, there is a ruptured shell, but it, it wasn't found at the crime scene. It was actually recovered um, on either a cart 
an autopsy cart or whatever cart was used um, from the from the Emmy's office. That is, we, we do not know the answer to that, and that's uh, that 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 is, we, we just don't know. Right, but it is interesting. How how is it that, that she would have known that type of terminology, or had, or she doesn't know anything about, about weapons? Not that I know of, other than growing up with her stepfather, but. Um, the only thing I can think of was that her stepfather maybe put that into her head or, or talked to her about that in, in juicing up her statement. He claims to have helped her with her very last statement to tighten things up after she gave the three to the police department. And I don't believe that that's true, um, you know, based on us looking at the police reports and asking a few questions and looking at the information and in, the, in that statement compared to the information that was withheld from us. We believe that, that he framed and put together her statement um, as the first one before anything as the foundation, because he's the only one that would have that knowledge or that, or that kind of information. Um, and we do know that Mr. Kramer, who is her stepfather, was you know in, in touch with the police department through the process of me being in Arkansas, because when I first got there, a detective went and wanted to know where I was and where I was at. And you know I stayed in contact with him. I gave him the address, gave him the phone numbers. Um, he, I mean, he wasn't tripping. He wasn't upset. As long as he knew where I was, everything was fine. Even in the process of getting back to Dallas, had I been guilty when, when, when getting, when getting that list from the apartment and knowing that all those items were found, had I been a guilty man, I would have burned off immediately and you would have never seen me again. That didn't happen. What did I do? I get with my mom to ask what's going on, figure out what's going on. Any time that, um, you know, guilty people run, I went running straight to the police to talk to these people to figure out what is going on here. What can I do to help? Had they just sat down and talked to me? and walked through this, I wouldn't be here today. But they weren't trying to hear it. Obviously, there's a lot to, to Amy's story, uh, some of which seems to not line up with with some facts later uncovered, um, potentially. Um, obviously, for your story to be true, your girlfriend at the time had to be lying uh, about a lot of, if not all, you say all, pretty much all of her, her statement. Why? Why would she make all this up about you? I have no idea. I mean, she, she testified that, hey, I, I traded her good. I, I treated her, I mean, we... That, um, you know, I, I treat her like a princess. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the day before the, the murder, she claims that I fire a shot at her. I slap her around. If I you know if I if on this on November 2nd, had all that been true, when I went to work on Friday morning, I worked for Countrywide Home Loans. I was I was a loan officer for uh, for Countrywide Home Loans licensed by the, the Texas Savings and Loan. Had all that been true on Friday morning when I went to work. She would have she would have left the apartment or gone somewhere or or got the hell out of there. That never happened. That that situation never happened. To me, Ivan has brought up Amy's past and trial testimony. How did you end up from Minnesota to Dallas? I met three guys at a bar that already lived down here, and then I hopped on a plane with them. How long have you known these guys before you hopped on the plane? Maybe twenty four hours. Ivan said this is a girl who had no problem hopping on a plane with three guys she just met the night before. So if she wanted to get away from him, she could have just walked to any bar near their apartment and started talking to some guy, and she was in the wind. But conversely, you heard from the expert, it is common for victims of domestic violence to stick around with their abusers. So this whole situation on that Friday is confounding. Amy at home all day, Ivan out, working his two jobs, and the bullet lodged into their apartment wall. 
Okay, so that gets to my to the question I was going to ask is that, yeah, that bullet they say is fired by the murder weapon. The murder weapon is later recovered and they find a, a thumbprint on the gun that matches you. Not on, let's be clear, it's not on the gun. It's, it's on, the, on, a on, the magazine, on the magazine of the weapon, on, correct? Yeah, not on the actual gun itself. And so how did that thumbprint end up there? Well, when we got back on November 7th back into Dallas, after, uh, you know, coming into Dallas, when we first arrived, we actually went to Tawny's apartment, which was um, an ex-girlfriend, and also we remained friends. And Betcher and I stayed at her apartment that evening. When I got into town, I called Detective Wynn because I told him as soon as I get in town, I'm going to call. I'm going to come see you. We'll talk about the case. Anything you want to talk about? I have nothing to hide. Let's discuss it. But I got in late. Um, I did call Dallas Police Department. They said he wasn't in. They said, "Don't worry about it. Call in the morning. Come back then." And while we were at Tawny's is when I went to the apartment and discovered that the search warrant had been, um, I guess, activated. And they went through the apartment and there was a list of items there that they had gathered from the apartment. I was in shock. I, I couldn't believe it. So when I, um, you know, got the list, I called my mom. I thought it was a joke. I mean, it did not look like it was anything formal. Um, and the list that was on there, um, you know, bloody jeans, bloody socks, keys, um, you know, things that would be attached to a crime scene. And so I called my mom. And I met her at the IHOP so I could show it to her and talk about it and, you know, figure out, you know, what what is going on here. And then from there, when I left her, we went by Amy's um, friend. His name is Metal. I'm Sylvia Cantun. My son is Ivan. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see if your son's name, did he go by a nickname of Metal? Yeah. Okay. At the time, I didn't, I did not know his name. I know his name now to be Homer. So we went by his house, and while over there um, in his garage hanging out is when I, he had different weapons laid out on kind of like a, not necessarily a workbench, but like a, like a, like a ping-pong table with either like a, um, like a toolbox or a, like a tackle box with just different um, weapons accessories and different stuff. And just from touching and looking at stuff like that, that's not my element or my world. I'm, I'm not around guns. But by, that's, the only thing I, that's the only thing that I can think of or the way that, that that print would have got on there. What are the odds that out of all those guns you just happened to pick up and load a magazine that ended up being the murder weapon or associated with the, the murder weapon? Um, I mean, how did, and, and why were you, knowing what had been going on, why were you, you know, messing with guns, I guess, is a, someone, why would you handle? Well, because I'd never really seen like that, you know, stuff like that before. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't really think anything of it. Now, any of the weapons that I saw there that night in the garage, I do not recall seeing that as the gun that was found with the, with the crime or attached to the crime that was that was located at Tawny's. Just different, just looking at different stuff and different accessories. That's that. See, I, we, I don't even know if that if that had happened or not. That's just the only thing I can think of. That's the only thing that I can think of as to how. Hey, Amy Betcher leaves uh, the apartment of Tawny's apartment. Your friend, ex girlfriend, uh, and they find the gun in her apartment under a couch cushion. Um, how did it go from either potentially Metal's garage or wherever it came from to to be under that couch cushion? We don't know if that came from Meadows Garage or not. We, we don't know. When arriving there, Tawny is able to, to fill out affidavits and say, hey, you know, and when Tawny was Mag's girlfriend, we were together, you know, we were we lived together at times, and we had, we had dated for years. And even um, she never saw me with a gun. Even getting there, you know, she hugged me. She saw me. There was, um, you know, no evidence of a gun or, or anything. She didn't discover that there was a weapon until Amy Betcher was boarding a plane and going back to Arkansas. And even then, she didn't tell we don't know. Ex- we don't know exactly what happened there. But when she before, before boarding that plane, that's when she tells Tawny, "Hey, um, go back to your apartment and look around." At that time, I don't think she she mentioned what that, that there was a gun there or any items. That's what she said. But when Tawny discovered that, 
um, you know, immediately, um, you know, she called the police, which was the right thing to do. And then that's what got the ball rolling for them to go over there the next day and, uh, you know, retrieve the weapon. I think Amy Betcher flew back on the, the 9th, would have been, which would have been the next day. Whatever day she was free at Connie's that afternoon, that's when I think either she left somewhere when she was alone by herself or somebody went to Tani's. And I, I believe that that's how she got the weapon. But, you know, since, you know, you did bring up the, the print, when we did have an independent expert look at that print and pick it apart, he created a 63-page report as to why that that print did not match me. And it turns out that he ended up retracting because um, he was a top um, forensic thumb examiner who showed it to a couple of his friends and, or I guess other people in the business, and that one of them looked at it and thought, well, let's turn it this way or turn it that way. And they figured out, you know what? Um, they, they, they believed that it was a match. But now what doesn't make sense with that print is on the right side of that, on, on the, the left thumbprint, the ridges go, the ridge line goes to the right and down. What's interesting about that particular print is that uh, the ridge line on the right side goes to the right and up. And so it's, 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 not, it's not a normal situation. You can see the flow here looks so different than it does here. Right. And that was, that's where I got it wrong. Comparing the two prints, like Ivan said, the ridge flow to the right of each print seemed to flow in different directions. But Ludus explains. And it's because of the angle of the thumb when it was being pushed up against the magazine. Eric Ray concurs. What this looks like here is, is a classic uh, twisting motion. What ends up happening is that part of the skin towards the middle of the contact will stick to the surface. And uh, the skin towards the outer edge of the contact will start to slip and, and move. So now the skin is uh, distorted slightly where it's not going to look the same versus when uh, you're just touching the surface straight down and straight back up again. But Ivan has another theory. When you recreate that with stuff that I touch that is round, which I've done and presented to you know the experts and, and the president of Matt, if I was to take my thumbprint and hit it on a pad and touch something round, that ridge line will go to the right and up. Not, not on a flat. On flat, it goes, it goes to the right and down. So now we know that the print had to maybe come from something round if, if, you, if you dissect it and look at it that way. But how would it have got on a flat surface? At first, I did not know. But once we started going through the binders and we realized that when the police department went to go confiscate items um, out of the Honda Accord, the car that, that I was picked up in, before leaving Arkansas, her mom, um, Amy's mom, had gave her some items that have nothing to do with the crime, have nothing to do with Pear Ridge, have nothing to do with the case, which are a couple of lamps, some candle holders, and um, some kind of a ceramic flower. What's interesting about those items is they're all round. After the embarrassment of Ludus's error, nobody is more ready to move past this thumbprint than me. But just when it feels like Ivan has gone a bridge too far, Ivan finds this one piece of evidence that is just really curious and makes you take pause. Ivan elaborated on this in a letter to me. When viewing the magazine print, my belief is that it came from something round. By December 15th, 2000, they already had everything needed to convict me, right? Well, Detective Wynn and Detective Ned drove out to the auto pound to visit the Honda Accord. Check this out. They specifically seized items that were round. Here's what they collected. A vase, glass lamp, two glass candle holders, and ceramic flower holder. 
None of these items were listed as missing or stolen from Gibbons. None of these items were connected to the crime scene. None of these items were presented to convict me. So you have to ask yourself, why would Detective Wynn and Detective Ned want to seize five items that have zero connection to the crime scene? I'll tell you why. These items have one value. Yep, I touched them and they have my fingerprints. That is the only value they have for the police. Ivan has a never-ending list of theories, but I don't know if it's because he's grasping at straws or throwing anything against the wall to see what sticks and may prove his innocence. Regarding this theory, this is what Eric Ray has to say about it. You know, the, the surface here on this lift really shows no signs of, of being on a round surface. So basically, Ivan's thumb touching something round does not create the ridge flow of the latent print and evidence. You know, a rounded surface where the finger is also twisting could leave something, you know, a, a print like this with this kind of distortion. But there's other information in the lift that really, really strongly says what this print was lifted off of. It's clear where the latent print and evidence came from because you can see the whole outline of the... The magazine. It has the, the width um, of the magazine. It's got the holes that a magazine has. Uh, I mean, everything about the lift screams this is from a magazine. And Ivan isn't trying to dispute that. His theory is that the police would have lifted his print off one of these round objects and placed it on the magazine. So I wanted to know, physically, what does that even look like for any individual to lift a print off, let's, let's just say something round like a vase. What does that look like? What's the process of lifting it off that object, planting it on another, and then relifting it, I guess? So first off, uh, you'd have to lift the latent print off of the surface before it was processed. Right, so if you put powder on something and, oh, there's the latent print, latent in, meaning invisible, then when you lift it off the surface, you lift the powder. You don't really lift the, the latent anymore. The, the residue that was the latent print is kind of covered up by the powder, but you're really lifting mainly the powder uh, off of that onto the tape. So then if you want to then go leave it somewhere else, now you're leaving behind powder and not a uh, actual latent print. So then, okay, well, well, don't powder it first, right? Just lift the latent itself off of the surface and then put it onto something else. So that could technically work, but there's, there's some downsides here. There's some problems. First is, where's the latent, right? How do you know where the latent is? But if you don't know that it's there or who it belongs to, then you don't know to look there, to find it, to pull it off, to put somewhere else. Say they were trying to set up Ivan, they don't know if somebody else touched that vase either. Right, because at, at that point it's still invisible, so they wouldn't know A, that it's there, or B, they wouldn't be able to compare it to Ivan to be able to tell that it's his and not somebody else's. So it's still a mystery why Detective Wynn wanted to collect all those objects out of the back of the Honda. But Ivan's theory that it was to get his print doesn't hold water. Though Ivan still maintains I would say that, that the Dallas Police Department manipulated the case and manipulated the evidence. Now, but you might ask yourself, well, why would they do that? If I could show you that, hey, not only did they do it on one, that piece of evidence, but they've done it on five other pieces of evidence, maybe four, there's a pattern there. And as ludicrous as, as it sounds, it's true and we can prove it. I mean, how can you, how can you prove it? 
Well, you know, I can I can give you one example. You know, the the, the bullet scenario that we discussed earlier. Um, you know what they what they mentioned and presented during trial doesn't match up with the, the bird's eye view or the forensics of it. Um, two, since we're online with the gun, when they discovered and located the the gun at Tawny's on the ninth, um, Detective Forrest Smith um, filled out his report and he took pictures. He took pictures of the gun. Um, the gun was not bloody. There's no blood on that gun. But yet, when it leaves Detective Forrest Smith's hands to get to the crime lab on the thirteenth, when it gets to the crime lab, they said there's blood all over that gun. It didn't come from me. I was at the police department on November 8th. And it didn't come from Tawny's, so. As crazy as that sounds, the only way that the, that the blunt would have got on that, on that gun, as they're claiming, is that either the crime lab is lying or the Dallas Police Department put it there. expert over there, Dr. Timothy Slither, he claims that they, James's blood was in the barrel of that gun. But based on his testimony, when they're claiming that blood, that blood was in the barrel of that gun, it's impossible because the test fires happened before that. So that's a whole other element and um, something that's just crazy with the, between the crime lab and Dallas PD. We've got to get into the weeds for this one, so bear with me. Basically, Ivan has two arguments. The first becomes a rabbit trail. Ivan's first argument, that when the gun was found at Tawny's, it did not have blood on it. The pictures taken of the gun at Tawny's would seem to corroborate this. Pictures from multiple angles of the gun show no blood, and yet at trial, there was a lab supervisor from Swift's on the witness stand which is the Dallas County Crime Lab. So this lab supervisor, his name was Dr. Timothy Slider. He testified there were several visible stains on the gun, one on the trigger guard and at the end of the barrel of the gun, which tested positive in the presumptive test for blood. So at first blush, this does seem like there was no blood on the gun at Tawny's, and then bam, there was blood on the gun at the crime lab. But once you dig further into the transcripts, the firearm expert testified that once he received the gun, presumptive tests for blood were performed on the gun. You see, blood invisible to the naked eye can be detected through these presumptive tests, like luminol testing. So the state would be able to dismiss Ivan's argument that the blood appeared out of nowhere at Swift's. The blood became visible because of these presumptive tests. However, in going back through this portion of the transcripts, additional issues arise. First of all, this lab supervisor, Dr. Timothy Slider, is testifying on behalf of the lab technician, Melissa Sweetland. He didn't perform the testing, she did. He didn't see these blood stains, she did. So why isn't she testifying? This would seem to be a violation of the Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment, which states in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him so they can be cross-examined. What presumptive tests were performed? How reliable are these tests? We don't know, and here's why. When it was the defense's turn and they conducted their arguably ineffective cross-examination, 
Ivan's attorney, Matt Geller, asked Dr. Slider, Do you have, just so I'm clear, do you have a pretty big stack of documents there? That whole pile in front of you there? What is all that? To which Dr. Slider testified, These are the reports and the supporting documentation that were produced by the biology laboratory on items that were submitted. Let me take a look at one of them, like that one there. Okay, this is the actual science kind of stuff. This kind of stuff? Yes, that's the actual science, the instrumental printouts that we produce as a part of our analysis. So just like Detective Wynn bringing his binders of evidence to the stand, Dr. Slider brought his pile of evidence to the stand that the defense had never seen before. And if you're the defense attorneys in a capital murder case and have to defend against these reports and supporting documents, wouldn't you want to have a copy and know what this science kind of stuff says? I've spoken with a former Swift's forensic analyst who told me Melissa Sweetland's forensic biology report, which states human blood was detected on the gun, should have been accompanied with a photocopy of her contemporaneous notes she took while analyzing the evidence. The contemporaneous notes of the analyst would have included the results for each test performed, which would have been critical for a proper cross-examination by the defense. Likely these notes were in Dr. Slider's pile of evidence he had with him on the witness stand. So while the state can dismiss Ivan's bloody gun anomaly with a quote, presumptive testing, it does point to yet another possible Brady violation, an example of ineffective assistance of counsel. Ivan's second argument was, Biology expert over there, Dr. Timothy Slither, he claims that they, James's blood was in the barrel of that gun. But based on his testimony, when they're claiming that, bl- that blood was in the barrel of that gun, it's impossible because the test fires happened before that. There's a report dated November 17, 2000, by the firearm expert that states test fires were conducted on the gun, which matched the bullets and cartridge cases attached to the crime. And then there's a bloody gun report from Melissa Sweetland that was dated November 20th. So Ivan argues, if the test fires were conducted on November 17th, how could James' blood still be in the barrel of the gun three days later? But the state can refute this argument also. Just because a report has a certain date, that just means it was finished on that date. The actual testing could have happened days before. Another reason the lab tech's contemporaneous notes are important, because these notes would have the exact date of the testing. When going down this line of thought, another revelation surfaces, which changes the crime scene analysis yet again. James' blood in the barrel of the gun was caused by back spatter. As you heard last episode, the gun was no more than five inches from James' face. And it's true, the test fires would have destroyed the blood inside the barrel. But the same is true with any fire, meaning James could not have been shot twice in the head first. At least one shot to James had to take place after all the shots to Amy. So now, we're likely looking at the perpetrator sneaking up low on the side of the bed, getting the gun a few inches away from the left of James' neck, then shooting Amy three times as she flailed around in the bed, then 
walking to the far side of the bed and putting a final bullet in the back of Amy Kitchen's head as she laid face down on the floor. Then, after he was presumably already dead, putting the gun inches away from James Wright Temple and firing a final shot into his face. In turn, creating the back spatter up into the barrel of the gun. A gruesome amendment to the crime scene analysis. I want to walk through some other names that come up in this case. Let's start with uh, a guy by the name of Anthony Gambino. His first name is really Bob, but he also went by Anthony Gambino. Uh, can you just tell me about your relationship with this guy? Well, I met him in either um, late 97 or early 98 when I went to work for a, a company called Southwestern Mortgage. One of their main investors was that was that gentleman there. And that's how, that's how I met him. And um, I mean, I knew, I knew him, through, you know, from the mortgage business. And then even when I left Southwestern Mortgage, um, we were, we were, I, I, we remained in contact. We remained friends and we, we you know, we, and we did communicate. Can you tell me about the situation between Gambino, uh, yourself and Amy Betcher? I mean, talking about starting an escort business. When it was discussed, um, I mean, the, I, that those conversations were had, but that was something that I really couldn't technically. I was I was not going to get involved up with a do. But yeah, the, 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 those com- that conversation did come up. What do you mean? Something you just you weren't serious about it? Or? Well, well, no. He, um, well, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. Um, he wanted to purchase or secure a, a house and put something together, put put an escort service together, and run it out of that house or something. Basically, yeah. And uh, I mean, those conversations were had, but I mean, it was I was not going to participate or, or or be involved in anything like that. Why not? Well, I mean, I was wanting to get my life back together. You know, I um, went to the Navy. I left the Navy. Um, I worked at Baby Dolls for a little while, and then got back into the mortgage business. And I just, uh, I mean, I needed to, I needed to get it together. And I, yeah, I just, uh, that's, I mean, I did, I wasn't going to be that guy. Well, let's talk about the the murder weapon for a second. The the registered owner of it turned out to be a, a gentleman by the name of Aubrey Gordon Patton. Uh, first off, did you know Aubrey? No, I've never, no, I've never heard the name. According to Aubrey's fifth wife, uh, Aubrey was running an escort business in the late 90s, and he was hanging out with a guy named Gambino. Um, is he maybe a connection between Aubrey, the owner of the gun, and the murder weapon being ultimately connected back to you? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, I'd never, um, I didn't know that till after the fact, till um, I started communicating with, with Matt and Matt was doing the investigation. He was the one that discovered and found that out. But I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know what to believe or know on that. Uh, let's talk about Gambino again real quick. Um, there were three phone calls to him um, from your cell phone around four in the morning, the night of the murders. Uh, why did you or someone call him that morning? I did not. I believe Amy was talking to him. Amy Betcher was using your cell phone. We both used it. 
Did Gambino ever give you a gun? No. Did he? Did you ever know him to have a gun? No. Do you know anything else uh, you want to add about Gambino and his role in this story? No, other than um, one of the things that I did notice was up to the time of, of leading to the murders, um, when I would not be at the apartment, um, our, the phone records show that there was heavy conversation between between him and the number registered to him. Um, so I believe that before the murders occurred, that there was there was some heavy conversation between him and Amy. What's interesting about that is when Amy Betcher got back to Arkansas, there was a message on the recorder from an Anthony saying, hey, if she needed anything to get with him. But Kramer took that tape and he gave it, he turned it over to DPD and it was, uh, it's never been seen. Let's talk about um, Chris and Amy had a little bit. Uh, the bloody jeans found in your kitchen trash can, they connected back to Chris's wife, Amy. Did you ever get a pair of jeans from either Amy or Chris Head? I did not know, but that's what that's what's interesting about those jeans is that, you know, it, it's interesting because they're they're located and found in the Parage apartment, but uh, I mean, you, their their product samples or prototypes they weren't even available in a store, and and so they could only have originated from that location. And it's interesting that that she was the one that worked there. Detective Wynn testified that an identical pair of jeans to those uh, ones found in the trash can were found hanging in your closet. This is an Arizona brand, 34, 32 jeans. I mean, what do you say about that? Well, I think if that was true, two things would have happened. They would have took a picture of it, or and they would they 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 would have they would have documented that. I believe he he is just saying that to make it seem as if there's multiple pair of those jeans within within my closet as as if I owned them. And that. Size 34, 32, that wasn't the size that you wore, right? No, absolutely not. That, that, that's, way, that's way too big for me. Why didn't your trial attorneys address that size discrepancy at, at trial? Because they're, 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 they're poor attorneys, and they, they were not trying to discredit or, or disprove the case. Chris Head had a brother. Uh, he went by the name of Buckhead. Um, Carlos had said that when you two first spoke about the murders, that Buckhead was the first person that came to mind as being possibly involved. Why did he come to mind? Because of his, his nature and in the past, the things that he had done in the past. That's what he was known for. He was literally known for for knowing, you know, drug dealers who had you know large sums of cash or expensive items in their homes, and they would you know kick door, kick door people's homes and either, you know, tie them up and rob them or um, harm them and, and rob them. So then there was a, you know, there was a, there was a history of that. So that's why we thought that. But um, I didn't look into this and I didn't know. But um, either Carlos or someone else had said that, uh, that that couldn't have been true and that couldn't have been him because he, he was in jail that weekend. I looked into that. And according to Open Records, Buckhead was arrested and incarcerated on October 18th, 2000. And then released on October 21st. And then locked back up on November 28th. So Buck was out and about during the time of the murders. Buckhead was known to rob drug dealers and then sell their stash to the highest bidder. A contact also told me that sometimes James was the highest bidder. James would buy that stash and then resell it. So setting aside all the evidence that points to Ivan, I've considered two things. If Buckhead robbed the wrong drug dealer and sold that stash to James, maybe a stash that connected to a larger drug dealer, like Mario Rosas, that could get somebody killed. 
or since he robbed from drug dealers. Like Carlos and Ivan initially said, maybe James had become Buck's latest target. Though aside from hearsay, there's no evidence that points to Buck. And the only connection to any of this and Buck are the genes through his brother and Amy Head. Do you think Chris or Buckhead, either or both, could have had any involvement in the murders, uh, or and do you have any evidence to that? I don't know. I mean, I, part of part of me, you know, believes so, and then part of part of me, you know, doesn't. I don't know. Frank Perez, uh, what are your thoughts about him as it relates to this case? I don't care for him, but I find it odd that um, that James and Amy had a, a washer and dryer, and they're very hospitable. That, that he would drive an, an hour and go somewhere else to do his laundry. And if, if James trusted him enough to have a key to, to his, his office, which runs his business, that mortgage company, he, he would have had a key to that house. Carlos and Anthony, uh, these are some of the first two people you suspected as being part of the murders. Uh, why did they come to mind? Well, they were the first ones. Remember when I said that, that DPD didn't really start asking questions? They started receiving phone calls from people and, and, and information. Well, that's who did that. Carlos and Anthony were the ones that, that reached out and started calling the police department. Now, what's interesting about what about Anthony, and I can't prove this, is my my gut tells me that he's a CI. That he's a confidential informant. And here's why. Because in the search warrant, it shows that he filled out a statement it led them to, to have probable cause to deal with me, but yet we've never been able to see that. The audio recording that, that Kramer turned over to, to the police is missing. Anything that has to do with this gentleman is gone. And that's just my gut feeling. And I, I don't, I think that, that he was working with an officer within that situation to see what was going on with that whole operation. But I, I, believe, I believe he was a CI. Not just that, when after um, he talked to the police, when Carlos lured the police over and, and, and talked to me while I was in Arkansas, he was so brazen. This is, what, this is what leads me to believe that. He was so brazen, he went to the police department with a pocket full of Coke. He's not an idiot. So if you're gonna go to the police department with a pocket full of cocaine, you must feel pretty comfortable with those people that are going to the police department to talk and fill out a statement when you've got a pocket full of cocaine on you. So they, they took his statement but then ultimately, I mean, they uh, um, they did arrest him. But see, even before the murders, that, that the summer before that, in August, he was busted. He got in trouble. And that's, that's what made me think that, hey, maybe they flipped him and had him become a criminal informant within that drug organization or that drug business to see what was going on. If you could say anything to either Carlos or Anthony, I mean, what would you say to them? Other than, uh, I mean, they, they lied against me. They know what they did. You know, Carlos, he, he tried to make it seem as if, as if I was a, a crazy man and that uh, there was no truth to uh, the, the pizza man story. And it's, uh, it was completely true. Before he took the stand in, in, in October, he had already been seen with that, that man in uh, the month before that in September. Amy's brother, Jeff, comes in and out of this story. He lived with you at one point. I mean, do you think he could have played any part in the murders or your, your setup? I've thought about that. But, but then part of, part of me believes yes, and part of me believes no, just because, uh, I mean, he was just a, a young kid. He's, he, 
doesn't he doesn't have any smarts. If he was, you know, somebody must somebody must have been in his ear. Somebody must have been talking to him. But in no way does he have the, the smarts or, or brains to, to to do anything. But I mean, you you never know. I mean, he's a he's a drug addict drifter kid. Um, the day after James and Amy's bodies were found, uh, the police received an anonymous tip that a man by the name of Mario Rojas had committed the murders, and that Mario was connected to a guy named. Johnny Mojica, um, had you ever heard of either of these guys prior to hearing about that? I did. I'd, I'd, I'd heard of those names from them, sure. Ivan's referring to hanging out with James, Carlos, and Anthony. How did you? I mean, did they go into, into details or, or lay out exactly what they were doing with them? No, but I just knew that, um, that, um, that their names had surfaced and that they, uh, they had um, obviously had some dealings with them in the past because that's, they were within uh, that certain area of Dallas with their, with their businesses. And um, that's where uh, James had purchased the rent houses to uh, keep the drugs. So you didn't know those those people? You just were aware of, of them? I'd never met them, no, but I'd, I'd heard their names within, you know, just hanging out and being with them, sure. Motive is something that plays into any, any crime. I mean, at the time, your cousin James, he had a successful mortgage business, a house, a fiancé. His life uh, would appear at least uh, to have been going well. Um, while at the time you had kind of just recently lost your, uh, your house and were working two different jobs to make ends meet, uh, prosecution contends that you were jealous of James and the life he had. Were you jealous? I, I, I was not jealous, no. And, and, and you know, that's what they claim, that, that jealousy was the motive. But, you know, years, years before that, I'd already had all those things. Um, you know, I was, you know, 26 years old. I was making great money. I had a, a home in Frisco. Um, a nice truck, nice, nice car, uh, you know, a couple of Corvettes, a, a skiing boat and um, things. And I went through a divorce and it, it, it wasn't, you know, an, um, you know a, a good situation. But I went through a divorce and I wanted away from just, you know, the, the party scene. Um, I was doing drugs, I was, you know, recreational drugs and and just wanted away from from the scene. And um, I had my own mortgage company at one time when I, and I closed it down and literally just stepped away from the world and I joined the Navy. And that was in February. And I just wanted a, a different life, a change of pace. Went, went that road to, to you know, clean things up and, and get my life back on track. Yeah, but no, I wasn't jealous of James. What was your relationship with him like, specifically the weeks, months leading up to the murder? Everything was fine. Everything was completely fine. Everything was normal. James and your mother had a, pretty, uh, had, had a lucrative business deal that involved mortgages and real estate. This is around the time uh, of the murders. Why were you not involved? Because I didn't speak Spanish primarily. Well, there was a couple of different reasons. Um, my mom, was, she was building homes and worked for a developer. But it, but primarily a lot of the people that, and this was a, a new development and new homes, but um, it was in an area where it's, it was, they, um, Spanish was the, speaking Spanish was, was the dominant language there. And so, and James spoke Spanish, I did not. So it was easy for him to communicate and, and, and work those loans and, and help my mom with that, which was, you know, which I completely understood. But you'll remember Anthony said this real estate deal would have put a considerable amount of money in James' pocket. Let's just say there was 100 loans, 100 loans on those homes that were being built. And each one, let's just say they're $200,000. Yeah, you get 3% on that, you know, as, as a uh, loan officer, you know, mm -hmm. over half a million dollars in commissions. And he don't get one of them. Hmm. He only been doing mortgages two years. Ivan's been doing it for six. So I would suspect he, he had a little resentment behind that, you know? Gosh, damn, your own mom. And her excuse was he didn't speak Spanish. 
Well, you don't got to speak Spanish to write numbers. Anthony tried to make it sound like, you know, it's not anything that anybody can't do. Well, yes, it's not. You just don't sit down with somebody that speaks a different language and and then tell them, print your name here. Um, by the way, I'm not going to explain to you what that's about. And you just sign here. And, I'm, you know, you don't need to know what that means. You explain to them everything in detail. And Ivan couldn't do that. He didn't speak Spanish. In that subdivision, how many houses were there? How many loans at the time was James closing? The subdivision had 91 homes, including the model. Uh, Jay Swan had a sister-in-law that was that got her mortgage license. So they were closing properties for that subdivision as well. So I would say a good maybe 25% of them, 30% of them went to her, and James was probably handling the rest of them. And James closed about two-thirds of those loans? Probably. What was the average price of those homes? 75, maybe to 130, 140. So let's say if there were... 60 homes, and if they averaged about 125000 the loan officer would get 3%. It would be 225000 So maybe not quite half a million that Anthony was ballparking, but in the neighborhood of a quarter million. At least over probably $200,000. That's a sizable amount of money and business going to James. You don't think that Ivan had any animosity about that? No, no. Ivan had no problem, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because he knew he could make money. He knew he could go into another mortgage company and do this as well. I mean, but for I can understand how people would be like, wow, looking at it from one angle, well, Sylvia gave James a couple hundred thousand dollars of business when Ivan was struggling, but... Ivan was you- at probably... You know, a low in his life, but he knew how to get back up. He was not one to pawn anything for money. He would work for it. In fact, he had a part-time job until he could build up his pipeline. James was making plenty of money from that deal. I mean, at a time when you were maybe struggling or trying to get your life back together, I mean, did that make you... Well, my, my life my life was together. I mean, I was working for Countrywide. I was waiting tables. I was having fun. I was, you know, I wasn't, you know... I wasn't at the level that I was before joining the Navy, but I mean, th- I mean, things weren't. I mean, they weren't horrible. I mean, they weren't. They weren't the best, but they weren't horrible. Some family members uh, from, at least from James's side, and uh, others have said that James perhaps had loaned you money shortly before the murders, and you were asking James for more money right before the murders. What do you have to say to that? No, that is not true. And um, now th- there were times where he did in the past, and I always made sure that, that he got his money back. Absolutely. But two different sides of. Uh, I mean, not we're not we're not talking, you know, thousands of dollars as 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 people testified to for me to start my own mortgage company. That was a complete lie. But I'm just saying, you know, you know, lunch money or you know whatever you know small items here and there. Sure, we're not we're not talking murder money. But is two hundred twenty five thousand murder money? Well, we just got a couple minutes left. I mean, what would you say, I guess, to the families of, of the, the victims? I want my co- I want my cousin's mama and that side of the family. I want the Musquetas to know that that I did not I did not kill James. I did not commit murder. And they've been mad at me for years. And they've always said, well, hey, if he if he doesn't know, then he knows who did. I do not. It's the police department's job. What I can show you is I did not commit murder. I can't necessarily tell you who did, but I mean, the arrow points to, you know, the police department framing me. 
which which we can show, but the police, but most people will think that just sounds ludicrous and crazy. Or we can show you, hey, look at these people over here that have a pattern of being involved in crime, drug dealing, or, or murders. What keeps you going as you as you work on this, as you try to get people to listen to understand your story? I mean, for one thing, I never I never committed murder, and I mean, you know, I, you know, I want to prove it to the world, and you know, prove it to my mom, and prove it to the Mosquitas, and prove it to the kitchens, and come home. I mean, I still have a life to live. And um, that, that's what keeps me going. Literally over the years, I've you know written hundreds of letters. I can't say thousands, but hundreds of letters to, to different media outlets, different magazines. And um, you know, some will respond back, wanting to, to you know talk about certain subjects, or they don't necessarily want to dig deeper, go into the case, or or, or, or put the prosecution or the or the, or the police department out there. And uh, so I, I thank you for letting me speak and talk to the world and. Uh, and let everybody know I, I, I did not commit murder. I'm, I'm an innocent man, and I, I, it's time for me to go home. That's what Ivan has to say in 2022. But what did Ivan say back in 2000 and all the years in between? Well, it's all documented, and there's actually a lot that's happened that you still haven't heard, including... He said she drugged him and knocked him out for hours. Let's talk about Amy Betcher and the night of the murders. Do you, do you think that Amy Betcher had ever drugged you? And what, if so, what would make lead you to think that? Well, on that particular night, I, I don't know exactly. I don't know for sure, but there was another incident. Next time on Cousins by Blood. continue to spread the word. Thanks to Houston journalist Michael Haggerty for conducting Ivan's interview. And you'll hear more from it spread over the final episodes. Thanks to Mr. Eric Ray. Ivan's letters read by Ryan Freed. Mixing and mastering by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned.